Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. In our previous episode, I had a conversation with the author, Jonathan Alter. We talked about his study of Franklin Roosevelt, Roosevelt's first 100 days, and the meaning of the first 100 days in modern presidencies. One of the things that really struck me about that conversation was the fact that FDR's first 100 days was really an effort at legislation, whereas we've come to really think of it now today as focusing more on, on unilateral actions by a president to show presidential energy. But it got me thinking about Congress, and I thought, who better to invite onto the podcast to think about Congress today in, in Joe Biden's first 100 days, and then Congress in the long run, than my colleague, Kevin Kosar. Kevin, welcome. Adam, thank you for having me on. Now, for those who haven't already encountered Kevin's work, he's a resident scholar here at AEI. He studies Congress, congressional oversight, the administrative state, American politics, and the Postal Service. He's the host of a new podcast here at AEI called, fittingly enough, Understanding Congress. Kevin, this feels like one of those crossover episodes where Batman and Robin face off against the Green Hornet and Cato. Or, uh... <laughs> I hope it's that exciting. <laughs> and his most recent book is titled, Congress overwhelmed the decline in congressional capacity and prospects for reform. And of course, we're going to talk a lot about that. But Kevin, we're taping this today on Thursday, February 11th. We're taping it in the middle of the Senate impeachment trial. We're not going to really touch that much, if at all, on impeachment, given that by the time people hear this conversation, we'll already be much further along in the process. Let's talk instead about Congress and COVID. Obviously, President Biden has said he wants to do things differently than the Trump administration on COVID policy. We'll see how that works out. We'll see how much it actually does differ from the Trump administration's approach. I'm curious how you think about Congress's role right now as we see a push to get the vaccines rolled out and take other steps to, to bolster the economy and try to get us back on, on an even keel. Well, what we're seeing right now is the effect that just one single senator can make. You know, we're at this peculiar time where the Senate is evenly split 50-50. Vice President Kamala Harris has the ability to break ties. Now, as we know, during most times, pushing legislation through the Senate typically requires lining up 60 senators. You know, that means if you want to do something really big and you can't get to 60, you're going to go through budget reconciliation as a process because that only requires 50 votes. Very early on, the Biden administration signaled that they were quite serious about trying to push through a massive COVID bill through reconciliation, which very quickly kind of put Senate Republicans, to say nothing of House Republicans, off because there was much talk of let's have unity. And the thought being that if you're going to do some sort of big rescue plan, let's do it the way we did the previous rescue plans. Let's get bipartisan buy-in. But right now, that doesn't seem to be the way things are trending. Yeah, why do you explain, for those who aren't familiar, what is reconciliation and and why does it only take 50 votes to get things passed that way? Well, reconciliation is a process that was created by the 74 Congressional Budget Act. And the idea back then was quite modest. It was an accountancy type thing. The notion is that Congress draws up a budget resolution, that's a spending plan for the year. Then you pass the 12 appropriation bills in accordance with that. And it's possible that you know the economy and the receipts generated, tax receipts may go up or down based you know, compared to what was predicted. And therefore, you would need to use a reconciliation process to make an adjustment in the law so that you could better balance the budget. What reconciliation has morphed into as is this vehicle through which partisan majorities can, narrow partisan majorities at that, can try to ram through their biggest priorities. And the way you just described it, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like reconciliation was created 
I won't say as a check on Congress, but sort of an extra procedure to make sure that Congress sort of stayed on a steady track and was doing its job. Maybe put it this way. Reconciliation is Congress's way of, of measuring twice and cutting once, right? Actually making sure that things add up. Now it seems to me that it's almost the opposite of that. Reconciliation is an opportunity, as you just said a moment ago, to do as much as you can, as fast as you can to get around the rest of, of the Senate process. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it's developed into. I mean, the, the 74 Congressional Budget Act was an attempt to take back power to set budgets from the executive. On paper, it's a very orderly process. It's a very rational process. But politics, unfortunately, has blown it out uh, into an unrecognizable form. You know, the budget resolution isn't what it used to be, a rational spending plan, and reconciliation is no longer just an accountancy exercise. So how do you see things playing out then in Congress with, with the COVID bills? I mean, what, what is Congress's to-do list, and, and will it get these things done? Yeah, the COVID thing is is interesting just because the majority is so narrow. And as we all know, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin is a decider, basically. I mean, the Dems need to hold him in place. To date, we've not seen any signs that any Republicans want to go along with the $1.9 trillion plan that Biden put out there, which they've had very little, if any, input on whatsoever. So it's hard to say where it's going to go. And I think Manchin will be able to exact some leverage it's possible that they'll end up doing something that has more of a sheen of bipartisanship. But I don't think it looks good for either party if this thing just crashes and burns. Something's got to get over the line. Now, again, the danger of taping a podcast that doesn't come out for a week afterwards is that things we might say could be overtaken by events. But this morning, again, February 11th, I was reading a news story, I think it was in Politico, about calls on for Vice President Harris as the president of the Senate to cast a tie-breaking vote to overcome any obstacles that might stand in the way of roping a minimum wage increase into the reconciliation process. Right? There's a question about whether minimum wage increase can fit in there. And the thrust of the story was that the Biden administration was resisting those calls. Again, we'll see maybe a week from now when people get this, we'll find out that it, it, it happened after all. But I'm just curious, what's the role of, of Senator Harris, you think, in these sorts of structural procedural disputes? I mean, obviously, she can pass the tie-breaking vote on on any number of things. But is, is she the most important senator rather than Manchin? Well, yeah, she could prove to be. I mean, if, if they are deadlocked, she does get to be the, the decider. But of course, we know she's going to support the administration. So it's almost as if there's a theoretical one vote that's locked in. But if Manchin defects, her presence doesn't mean anything. You know, the Democrats will not have the votes they need. But it's a, you know, the Senate's a very clubby place. I mean, senators want to run their own chamber. And the idea of somebody coming from the executive branch, even somebody who served as a senator and coming and casting the deciding vote as a frequent practice, I think, is going to put a lot of people off there. There is some sense of institutional pride that still exists in the Senate, believe it or not. We'll circle back to the budget questions, which is obviously going to be a big issue in the, in the weeks ahead. And we'll also circle back to some of these collegiality questions in a moment, too. But in addition to COVID, the other thing that's you know on the senator's plates right now, in addition to impeachment, is nominations. President Biden is staffing up his administration. He's made lots of nominations for appointments, and now these things are pending before the Senate. How should we think about the Senate's role? Well, first of all, in big picture, how do you see the Senate handling the appointments that are coming to it? And are they going to try to fast track them? What's going to happen? And then just more broadly, how should we think about the Senate's role? in granting or denying advice and consent to presidential appointments? Yeah, good questions. The Senate has moved on some of the easier 
nominations. I mean, Janet Yellen to lead Treasury, who could object to that? But now they've gotten into some of the more trickier ones. And the, the most recent is you know, the proposed head of the Office of Management and Budget, who is a democratic political activist. She has many credits to her name, but she also has a very forked tongue and she has trashed numerous members of the, the US Senate, including one who's ostensibly on her side, Bernie Sanders. And no political party, Democrat or Republican, who's in the minority wants to be treated like a rubber stamp or a doormat. At some point, you know, the sheer numbers of nominees that'll come through, they're going to stand up and they're going to start raising hell over it and saying, we're not doing this. Somebody always is a sacrificial lamb. It's just a question of who that'll be. Will it be her? Perhaps. If not her, somebody else will go. Because there's just no way a Republican senator can go back and face constituents and say, yeah, I've, we, we proved everybody. They'll stand up at certain points strategically, which makes sense. It's you got to remind the administration that they can't have everything they want. And not everybody is just right for a cabinet position. I mean, one of the untold stories during the Trump administration is how many times Mitch McConnell and the Republicans turned back nominees that they thought were just not up to snuff, made by the men, you know, the leader of their own party. I mean, speaking of Senator McConnell, the Senate didn't have confirmation hearings for the incoming cabinet secretaries before the inauguration. I, mean, I recall that, that there were hearings for at least some of the nominees before President Trump's inauguration. What should we make of this? I don't, I don't know the story behind it yet. I'm kind of curious if you have any sort of view of why there weren't hearings before the inauguration. Obviously, this has been, a, we'll say, a weird transition, to say the least. Mm. Everything from President Trump and some of his agencies being pretty standoffish to the landing teams from the transition to just the, the fights over whether President Trump actually lost the election. And then, of course, the insurrection of January 6th. But I mean, even after January 6th, there weren't confirmation hearings. So what should we make of that? Well, the Senate is, a, is an odd beast. You know, there are the rules of the Senate, but the rules are actually not followed. It's the precedence. Procedurally, it is a place that any senator can tie up action significantly. And so we had the Georgia runoff election, which couldn't be done until around January 5. So we didn't even know who would control the chamber because we had two seats that were still open. And the Democrats were seeing certainly their prospects of gaining both those seats rising and rising, which, you know, it's entirely possible that, you know, Chuck Schumer decided to do that, you know, we're not going to do anything right now. We want to wait. It's hard to say, you know, people like to think that whoever's the majority leader can pretty much schedule the Senate to do stuff and kind of move stuff along like an engineer, but it doesn't quite work like that because the minority always has the ability to be very disruptive and to gobble up precious Senate time. So yeah, you throw that in into the mix, the delay in getting senators seated and sworn in, which took into what took was mid-January. And then on top of that, you had the insurrection, which sucked a lot of air and attention out. And then you have impeachment. These are all things that are delaying the calendar for getting nominees to go through the process. And back to the big picture on that, I guess. You know, you're a scholar of Congress. People who focus on the presidency often have a sort of pro-president almost anti-Congress view of advice and consent, namely that the Senate should basically defer to any of the president's picks so long as they aren't sort of cartoonishly unqualified or chosen for purposes of nepotism or, or, or what have you. And Hamilton wrote about this in Federalist 76, you know, saying that the Senate had a job to play, just sometimes a silent check just sort of looming there so the president would, wouldn't even bother nominating unqualified people. But as somebody who focuses on Congress, do you have any thoughts on on how the Senate should just conceive of its role in 
in the, the advice and consent process? I'm not asking you to sketch out like a test for who to confirm or not, but as somebody who focuses on Congress first, how do you, how do you think about these things? Yeah, perhaps that's my next research project to develop the COSAR test that can be applied to nominees and to get it adopted on Capitol Hill. <laughs> no, I, I think the reality of you know, modern government requires that the, the Senate be a bit more deferential than, say, 200 years ago, because we have these agencies, you know, 180 federal agencies or something like that, and they're running along. And the question is, like, do you want people in charge of them who you've at least given the sniff test? Or do you want acting appointees and you know folks that you've never met? And so I think there's an institutional interest in kind of going into this process and getting to it promptly, but not bogging down too deeply in the weeds. I mean, there's something like 300 nominees that the Senate has to process for cabinet agencies of all the nominees who are for various little independent agencies or the military service academies. So it's just a matter of rational self-interest. You can only dig in so deep on these people, because otherwise you'll just spend all, all the Senate's calendar time going through this sort of process and not doing other stuff. Some people call for actually a reduction in the number of presidential appointments that require Senate advising consent. I mean, the Constitution sets a standard for this, right? It says that officers have to be appointed with, by the president with the Senate's advice and consent, except inferior officers, the Congress can, can, can structure it so that either the president or the heads of the agencies or the the courts of law can, can make appointments unilaterally. It's, it's much more complicated mm-hmm. than that. But, but so there is some constitutional floor, but we're, we do operate above that. There are a number of jobs that probably don't require, as a constitutional matter, Senate advice and consent. Is that something you've given any, any thought to yourself? Are we in a, right, a good place there? Or should Congress scale back its, the Senate's role in the appointments process? Yeah, I think it's, it's worth a look. About 10 years ago, if memory serves, Congress did go through and pass some legislation that, that cut into the number of nominees that it had to consider a bit. But it, there's a mathematical sort of process working in the opposite direction, which is that you know, each year, kind of Congress creates more government and more government needs tends to need more nominees. <laughs> and so this is where the workload keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think the the downstream effects of government giganticism, I don't think, have been fully assessed. And one can see in the crush of nominees that Congress has to handle one aspect of it. Yeah, the, the point that you made a moment ago about you know, the Senate is too burdensome on the process, then it's not like government doesn't happen, but rather government's going to happen with a series of acting cabinet secretaries. And, and I think that's a, a huge problem. I think it was a huge problem in the last administration. On the other hand, I do worry about the Senate not being invested enough in governance. I remember right before the President Trump's impeachment, his first impeachment, I mean, there was questions about what's the Senate's role in an impeachment? What, is it a jury? Is it a What is it? And I wrote a piece for National Review saying the Senate's job in impeachment is to really be the Senate, not pretend it's a court, but to act in the way that the founders envisioned the Senate would act. And, and along the way, in making that point, I said, the framers pretty, at least the people who defended the Constitution, like the Federalists, pretty clearly envisioned the Senate, not as being an executive body, I mean, as legislative, of course, but being really deeply invested in and immersed in administration, right? And taking seriously advice and consent, taking seriously the treaties that it would give its advice and consent to. Oversight would play a role and, and so on. But I sometimes worry that the Senate, which probably has, I think, even more of a duty than the House to really stay on the ball with, with what's happening in administration. Senate sort of thinks of administration as just what the executive does. 
And that's just clearly not how Hamilton thought of it. I mean, Hamilton said the executive is first and foremost administration. Administration is first and foremost the executive. But the Senate and other parts of government would play a role too. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is I wish the Senate would do more in the advice and consent process. Maybe not a lot more, but I just it seems to me that right now the pendulum has swung too far in the side of Senate inaction, Senate disregard, almost being kind of content with government by and what really made me think about this was the way that the Senate seemed pretty content with the flurry of acting officers that we saw in the last administration. Am I going wrong on this or how do you think about it? No, no, it's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is that we're seeing the kind of corrosion of the Senate into more and more intense partisanship, where, you know, if it involves a nominee or an acting person who's not, who's of our party, we're just going to assume it's fine. There's not that sense of ownership, you know, be a good team player, don't get in the way. Washington's not always worked like that. It used to be that senators felt a bit more turfy, and they were willing to kind of stick it to their own members, their own presidents. I mean, Jimmy Carter had famously rough handling at the hands of of Democrats who controlled both chambers and ended up being a one-term president. You know, this is just in keeping with a trend. But I do think that it's also the case that the sheer volume of nominees, you know, this gets back to the kind of Congress overwhelmed theme, like how many of these people can you really dig into and kind of really spend the time getting to know and figuring out if they're trustworthy and working with the administration on ways to back out people gently who shouldn't be in there, but also pressure the administration to give you new nominees so that you don't have acting people run. Like how much energy do you want to spend there? And there's a there's an element of, you know, the disconnection has occurred between, you know, Madison said that you don't want angels in office. You don't want people who are eating kale because they like to eat kale, but people who do hard things because it's seen as being in their their self-interest, the interest of the man and the constitutional prerogatives of the place. And something's gotten disconnected there. That's a big meta problem across both chambers. You mentioned Congress overwhelmed. And again, that's the title of your latest book. Let's talk about it. I look at Congress. They don't seem that overwhelmed to me. They're, they're on cable news quite a lot. They spend a lot of time back home and they're with their constituents. Why is Congress overwhelmed? Yeah, yeah. Well, that gets to the question of what they're spending their time on. You know, certainly the, the data we have show that members of Congress are, are quite busy. But one survey of the House done a few years ago showed that members of Congress spent about 30% of their time on policymaking and oversight, and all the rest of the time went to other stuff, fundraising, constituent service, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's an element of priorities, what they're engaging in, which offends us because the priorities don't line up with the duties of governance. You know, when they take the oath and all that, you have expectations about what they should do when you look at the Congress or the Constitution and see what Congress is supposed to do. There's a lot there. There's a whole lot of things that they're supposed to do. It doesn't feel like they're doing a whole lot of them. Now, the book basically says, you know, look, if you look at Congress as an institution, the quantity of work that it's supposed to be doing, funding 180 agencies per year, you know, helping oversee the 4 million civilian and military workforce, all the nominees, everything else that they're expected to do, you look at those demands and they grow year by year by year. I mean, there are thousands of interest groups in this town who want meetings with members of Congress. The average member of Congress also gets, you know, something like 46,000 constituent communications per year. 
And yet the actual resources available to members of Congress have gone down over the last 40 years. So the demands go up, institutional resources go down, and you know, more generally, it's uh, the whole place is kind of sliding into the anachronism. You know, policies, procedures, structures are just so out of date. There hasn't been major congressional reform in 50 years to try to keep up with the times. What are the meetings and the letters about? Are they all about legislation or what? Everything under the sun. It's, you know, an individual has a family member having a hard time with an agency. I mean, that's one of the effects of government giganticism is that the legislator's job increasingly becomes to be an ombudsman for constituents to the administrative state. You know, that grows and grows. I was going to use the exact, I'm glad you said, I was going to use the exact same line. I was going to say, it seems to me that Congress's main job today is ombudsman for the administrative state. And in that role, everybody under the sun wants some of Congress's time because everybody under the sun has a complaint about some aspect of some administrative program, either that it's doing too much or it's doing too little or it's doing something to the wrong person. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, they're the interest groups. I mean, if you look at the, number of organized interests, everything from charitable interests to corporate interests, policy interests. I mean, the number of interest groups in D.C. making direct demands on Congress has skyrocketed over the last 50 years. And all those people want something. They want to communicate. They want to get their policies listened to. I mean, that's pluralism in action. And they want all sorts of stuff. Amend this regulation to protect our interests. Change this law to do that. Put more money over here. Come talk about our issue. You name it. People want stuff. And that creates a ton of work. I meant when I introduced you originally to also add that you co-founded and you still co-direct a working group called the Legislative Branch Capacity Working Group. And I gather that the book is in many ways an outgrowth of, of that project. Yeah, thank you. It is. You know, yeah, we started the Legislative Branch Capacity Working Group, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. Essentially, it was my experience that there were a lot of people on Capitol Hill who were miserable, members and staff. They kept feeling like this is not what they had signed up for, but nobody was doing anything. It was like a sense of learned helplessness had captured the whole place. And I said, well, why don't we talk about reform? And so we created this working group as a kind of non-work, nonpartisan space. You know, Lee Drutman of New America, they lean left, and me, who leans right, we put this together and we had monthly conversations, not pushing a specific agenda of like, here are 10 fixes for Congress, but rather just to get people in the same room to start focusing on this institutional issue. Because I think it's very easy for Capitol Hill to focus on non-institutional issues, policy, politics, personality, elections, all that sort of stuff. Focusing on the institution of Congress, asking what's working, what's not working, and then how do we fix the stuff that needs fixing? I know you focused over the years on the framework of, of smaller institutions within and around Congress that help it do its job, right? Before you were at AEI, before you were at R Street, you were at the Congressional Research Service, where I was reading your reports long before we ever met on some constitutional issues. I noticed you co-author a few chapters in this, this book on Congress Overwhelmed, but your own chapter, the one is dedicated to legislative branch support agencies what they are, what they do, and their uneasy position in our system of government. I mean, I think I know at least what a lot of them are, right? Everything from the aforementioned CRS, Congressional Budget Office, the GAO, I suppose, maybe the Library of Congress and others. Maybe say a few words about that, but I'm very curious, what's their uneasy position in our system of government? Yeah, sure. You know, one of the basic aspects of representative self-government, where we pick people to go to the popular assembly through elections, is that 
anyone can be a member of Congress. Nobody is particularly trained to do the job, despite the job being fantastically complex. And it's a kind of old conceit in this country that what you need is to just send people to Washington with good horse sense and they'll be able to govern wisely. And I think good horse sense and character are absolutely critical, but it's not enough. You know, it's not enough. I mean, you you come to DC and then very quickly you find yourself as a new representative being asked, well, what do you think about the CBO analysis on the budget resolution? And by the way, we're talking about a Medicare fix. How are you supposed to answer those questions? How are you supposed to even know how to introduce a bill into Congress? You've no training to do any of this stuff and doing it is quite complex. And that's why we have these legislative branch support agencies, which you, you named them all. And their job is to be the civil servants, the nonpartisan folks who work for the Congress and give them the information and analysis and the training so that they can then do their jobs. You know, their uneasy position comes from the fact that they're the smarties. They're the ones who know more about issues than the legislators frequently do. Yet they're not supposed to be the decision makers because they're not elected. They're not accountable. We were running the same thing with the administrative state. Like we don't want them just making policies, you know, send some sort of democratic inputs or responsibility. And so the people at, you know, CRS, GAO, I mean, they have to be very careful about doing analyses and coming off as very even handed because facts can be offensive. You know, in the 90s, we had some congressional retribution against agencies. GAO, for example, was cut, had its budget cut 25% because the perception was that it had been doing analyses that were a little too gentle on the Democrats. So it's a tricky thing. We'll get back to the cuts in a second. But as you describe that, I'm just thinking about the ways in which those parts of the broader apparatus of Congress increasingly do get roped into our policy disputes, right? You think about how much hinges on the CBO score of some Mm -hmm. legislation. You think about before we're talking about reconciliation and and whether you could get a, a minimum wage in that process. So much of it hinges on, if I'm correct, the Senate parliamentarians' mm-hmm. application of the Bird Rule. You know, as we see in government over and over again, institutions sort of crumbling under and norms crumbling under the weight of the fierce urgency of now on any given policy issue. Do you think that the ideal role of these nonpartisan institutions within Congress, the CBO and others? Is that tenable in the long run, or are we looking at sort of the near-term ruin, I guess, of of those parts of the legislature? Yeah, I think they're going to stick around. And I think that we can help them stick around by making sure that they are clearly still in an advisory capacity. I mean, one of the things I lament about the 74 Congressional Budget Act is that it has CBO not just score a bill, but the scoring has ramifications for legislative procedure and the basically, what's the likelihood this bill is going to get through? And putting CBO in that position, I think, just was a mistake because it, you know, they can't win. They do the numbers, they come up with something. One side's going to love it, the other side's going to hate it. The sides that, that hates it is going to go after them. CRS, for example, when the issue of earmarks got really hot about you know, 15 years ago, there were all these scandals with Embramoff and all that. You know, you had members of Congress on both sides of the earmark issue asking CRS to do reports on earmarks. And the agency was like, if we touch this, except in the most like antiseptic way, we're going to get killed. And then we get all of our appropriations from Congress. We don't want to get dinged. So it's tough. I remember when you left CRS, I can't remember if we knew each other at the time, but I remember when you left, 
you had this essay in the Washington Monthly. I just brought up my screen mm-hmm. a second ago called Why I Quit the Congressional Research Service. The subtitle on it was How Congress's Dysfunction Has Degraded Its Own In-House Think Tank. So why don't you spell out that last point you made in a little more detail? You know, what was your experience at CRS and, and the problems that you detailed in that, in that essay? What do they say sort of more broadly about the state of Congress? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, there were, there were all sorts of things going on. I mean, in part, Congress's refusal to give it itself more personal staff meant that constituent requests increasingly were being sent over to people with, you know, master's degrees and PhDs at the Congressional Research Service. I think the, the article actually leads with an anecdote about me helping a congressional staffer respond to some crazy constituent letter. You know, and that's a bandwidth thing. I mean, it's just not the best use of people power, but Congress refuses to staff itself up a bit more because they, you know, are worried about the political optics of it. And they're worried that if one side moves to add more staff, the other side will savage them. You know, so part of it was that. There was also the efforts to weaponize CRS. So we would have members of Congress who had an issue that they wanted to raise to salience. So they would ask CRS to write something on it. And then they would take the you know, analysis and go out and start yelling about it in front of cameras. And in some case, just grossly mischaracterizing the work. <laughs> I remember one member is actually standing on the floor and watching him on C-SPAN yell, holding something that, that I had written. And it was just like, that's not what the memo says. But I had written it as a confidential memo, and he was the only one who had a copy of it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, that, of course, created retribution, you know, questions coming in about what I had done. And then there's the, you know, members who would come after the agency because we wrote a report and they didn't like what it said. You know, they'd call you and they'd browbeat the head of the agency and they threaten to raise hell during the appropriations process. And here you are, it's just a bunch of nerds who are trying to help out Congress as they do their job and you're catching brickbats. You trace some of this to the 1990s and obviously Speaker Gingrich had particular views of what Congress ought to be, how it ought to operate. And that Congress, the, the 95, 96 Congress, really seems to be the, the hinge point of a lot of this. Our friend and colleague, Philip Wallach, wrote a paper on this recently, a version of it for a, a workshop at the program I run over at the George Mason University on conservatives' sort of theory of Congress from the 80s through the 90s. When you think about that era, the, the Gingrich era, the reforms that he made, you know, cutting Congress's own budget, I mean, it seems to me he in many ways, did it for good reasons, right? He wanted to cut budgets overall. And so you lead by example and, and cut your own. Maybe there are other reasons too, but it's certainly, I think at this point, it's, it's clear that, that it did undermine Congress in ways that might not have been foreseen at the time. How do you think about that moment in history and what animated Gingrich and, and how we ought to, what lessons we ought to draw from that? Yeah, I guess on the one hand, I understand where Gingrich was coming from. I mean, the Democrats had had a hammerlock on on Congress for decades. And there was a lot of bad things going on. There was the page scandal, there was the house banking scandal and the post office scandal. And like, it was one thing after there was ab scam. I mean, there were many skeezy things going on in Congress and the place had gotten to be a bit, a bit of an animal house. In the early seventies, Congress, when it realized it was kind of way behind the executive branch, it started to empower itself. And one way it did was to say, okay, we're going we're to staff war in the chambers. So staffing started going up, 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 up. But at the same time, there wasn't any effort to make sure that these staff were well-managed. You know, they just kind of flooded the place with people. And that led to situations where members of Congress were actually getting mad because staff were keeping them from other members of Congress and were inserting themselves in various ways into the policy process. And so by the early 1990s, 
you even had Democrats who were saying like, maybe we got too much staff in this place. And other things had happened where the Office of Technology Assessment, which is uh, no longer around, but it was a agency set up in the in the 70s. You know, Ted Kennedy had a great influence over what that Ledge Branch Support Agency spent its time on, and the Republicans resented that. And, you know, there were other members of Congress, powerful ones who would, you know, they would take friends and the children of incompetent friends <laughs> or the incompetent children of friends and put them into legislative branch support agency jobs, dump them in the Library of Congress and CRS and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, you know, bless Newt's heart for wanting to clean house and to, to make the place run better. But I wish he had spent more of his time theorizing about how to make people do the work of governance in Congress. And instead, what he did was he cut staff, both the ledge branches, foreign agencies, and the committee staff. And committees are supposed to be these powerhouses of policymaking and oversight, and then let resources flow up to his office. And so now we're in this situation where it's just, it's the Nancy and you know Chuck show. And not too many other members of Congress feel like they have a stake in the policymaking process. So they spend a lot of their time acting up on TV. Yeah. In terms of the dysfunction of years, years ago, I mean, I, I remember very clearly when Congressman Nussel put the bag on his head with little eyes cut out to sort of, <laughs> because of his embarrassment of being a member of Congress and the, was it the banking? That was the banking scandal, I guess. All the, the, the people overdrawing their, their checking accounts in the House Bank. I remember that because I was, I was in his district. I grew up in his district. So you know, I, I came of age with a pretty low view of Congress. You know, in hindsight, it seems to me, and I'm sure I'm borrowing this idea from you or Phil or Yuval or somebody. I borrow all my ideas from, from you guys, basically. But <laughs> it seems to me that the Gingrich, in hindsight, was making Congress act more like a, a presidential administration, right? Centralized in the speaker's, the speaker's office and sort of thinking about Congress as like an organizational chart underneath the speaker. Like you said, we end up with the the, the Chuck and Nancy show, and members of Congress and the committees are left with, with much, much less to do. Now, if the committees did have more to do, I think the first thing we'd see more of is, is more oversight. That's not always a good thing. I mean, I, I wish that Congress would just do more legislation, but how do we get back from this? You, you've been involved in your own work on the, the legislative branch capacity working group. You have this book now, but you know, recently Congress had a slick committee on modernization Maybe you could describe what that is and, and explain for our audience whether that has any, that's produced any fruits that, that might bear out with real reforms. Sure, sure. Well, my opinion is that Congress as a whole has a tendency to fall into anachronism. That's because nobody's in charge of it and it doesn't face any real competitive pressures, unlike a private firm. And so, you know, when Newt Gingrich decided to make some reforms in the 90s, like one of the things he stopped was that every day buckets of ice were delivered to each member's office. Why? You know, that was just something that had been done for decades and nobody had bothered to think to get rid of this wasteful practice. And so I think Congress as a whole needs a scrub from top to bottom rules, internal structures, technology. I mean, everything needs to be looked at because everything is sliding into anachronism. Now, the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress was set up a couple of years ago, and it was a deal that some of the younger members of Congress and frustrated members of Congress forced Nancy Pelosi to take. And it's only in the House of Representatives, so unfortunately, the Senate's going to continue to lag behind. But it was set up as a bipartisan committee. Unfortunately, it doesn't have the ability to report legislation. It can only issue recommendations, and that was part of the leadership's effort to clip its wings. Because reform, I should mention, inevitably threatens to gore somebody's oxes, you know, and the people at the top who have the most power are, are the most obvious ox to gore. 
So the select committee has been beavering away for more than two years, and it's been extended for another two years. And Chairman Derek Kilmer, a Democrat of Washington, is a former McKinsey guy, really sharp fellow. He's been earnestly working, and they've come up with 97 recommendations that they unanimously reported out on how to improve the chamber. But none of these are big things. But the biggest is they've suggested changes to the budget process, like moving to a biennial budget process. A lot of it is kind of stuff that you can't believe that they actually had to deal with, like the fact that there's essentially no training for a congressional staffer. <laughs> you know, you're just kind of brought down here and you're given a badge and that you're, you're at the mercy of whomever happens to be your manager. There's all sorts of things administrative in terms of how the place is run and in terms of the technology that staff are allowed to use that is just so out of date and retrograde. And they've been tackling that stuff. So it's a lot of small ball, low salience, not threatening stuff, but it's valuable. So there's reform of the budget process. What about reform of the filibuster? What are Ah, your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Well, we wouldn't be talking about the filibuster if it hadn't come to be abused. I mean, the data are quite clear. The number of times that they have to deal with cloture has just skyrocketed over the last three decades. You know, if you take a tool and abuse the tool, then don't be surprised if people want to take the tool out of your hand. And we've seen it erode in the nominations process most most prominently. I don't think it's going to go away for legislation as a whole, just because each member of Congress, it's a great tool for leverage. And so to give up that tool for the sake of the greater good of the party is a tough thing to ask members. And we've already seen certain Democrats say they're not going to do it. But I do hope that there is a reform into the way that it's treated. And that is, if somebody wants to say they're going to filibuster, then make them hold the floor. This business of them just simply saying it and being able to go on their merry way and the Senate grinds to a halt is crazy. You shouldn't need 60 votes to pass everything. Here's my theory of what will happen. The filibuster will stay exactly the same, except that probably in the next year, the first year of the Biden administration, we'll see Senate Democrats create some exceptions to the legislative filibuster, right? We saw this play out on the judicial side, right? They, they didn't get rid of the judicial filibuster. They just got rid of it for lower court nominees. And, and then, of course, then got rid of the Supreme Court justices too. And my, my guess is that for some key pieces of legislation, Democrats, for example, the aforementioned Senator Manchin, he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. He said, he said as much, if I remember correctly. But he might be willing to go along perhaps with, let's say, some sort of just carve out of the filibuster. This particular kind of legislation can't be filibustered. And so they can say that they kept the filibuster when what they really will do is continue its sort of trajectory towards further decline. Yeah, it's entirely possible. I mean, there's been talk about doing that for the big voting rights elections bill, HR1 and that sort of stuff. Yeah, we'll see. But no, I, I think it's no surprise that we're at this point. The tool's just been misused. It will end with the biggest picture question of all. And we've talked about the, you know, debates about reform, specific tools, aspects of Congress's job. The reason why these debates are so intractable is that we just don't have a basic theory of what Congress, what it does in our system anymore. I remember years, just a few years ago, there were two Article I projects, Article I being a reference to Article I of the Constitution. I remember the, the Federal Society commissioned some you know, interesting papers on this. They called it the Article I Project. I think some members of Congress, some senators and some Republicans had an Article I initiative. I remember they had a big sort of introduction of the program over at Hillsdale's Kirby Center on Capitol Hill. And these were interesting initiatives. I think the Federal Society one went further than the the kind of in-house congressional one. But at the end of the day, we can argue about the way Congress is doing its job, but I don't think we really 
have a clear view of what Congress's job is. Now, that is, that's a question that I know I am taking from you and from Phil and from Yuval. I know Yuval's giving it a lot of thought as AEI thinks through American constitutionalism more broadly. Kevin, can you tell me what Congress's job is? <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. I guess the most fundamental thing I would, I would say is that the challenge is to help members shift from seeing their self-interest as best served by being 100% a party person and have a higher percentage of it be done through institutional thinking. The place used to have a lot more legislators who were institutionalists, you know, 50, 75 years ago. And these people were not angels. Again, these are not people who were just finger-wagging moralists who came and said, well, I read the Constitution and I have to behave this way. No, they saw a real interest in doing oversight, legislation, running competent hearings, becoming basically power brokers on the Hill. And that's what everybody who's an elected official wants to be. You want to be a mensch. You want to be somebody who can do stuff. And right now, the chamber has been structured in a way that they don't feel like they can do it. They don't know how to take back the power. And they think the best they can do is to you know, fall in line and to act up and getting them or to, to go, see there's another way. Or to go on, on cable news and criticize the institution. You know, We sometimes say, people allude to Madison and Federal 51 saying, you know, ambition is supposed to counteract ambition you know, between the branches. And I, I point out, well, that still works, right? Except now it's the ambition of a Republican congressman to get on Fox and Friends and a Democratic <laughs> congressman to get on Morning Joe, and, and their ambition can counteract one another there. At the same, I mean, I, I don't want to sound too cynical. I mean, we, we've seen moments of reform. There was the same year that the 75 years ago this year, when Congress passed the Administrative Procedure Act, they passed the Legislative Reorganization Act, and that was a mixed bag. Joe Postel of Hillsdale wrote a paper recently on this for the, that program I run over at George Mason. Gray Center. In the 70s, in the aftermath of Watergate, we saw a flurry of statutes. I think those were definitely a mixed bag. I'm not a fan of several of them. The independent counsel statute, campaign finance laws. But you saw things like the Emergency Powers Act and, and the War Powers Act and others. So sometimes you can see reform spring up in crisis. And I know Congressman Mike Gallagher and, and others are thinking about these things. That's a long segue to say, if they would like people who are thinking about these things, if they, they shouldn't give up hope, they should continue to think them through. And one resource they ought to consult regularly, in addition to your own work, is your podcast, Understanding Congress. So before we go, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? How long has the podcast been around? Who are the guests? What do you talk about? Sure, sure. The podcast started in just two months ago in December. We already have about seven episodes up. Each one runs about 20, 25 minutes tops. The podcast aims to basically teach people about the most unbeloved of the branches, the first branch. How does it work? And the programs fall into two buckets. Some are simply explanatory, like how does the House set itself up at the start of a new Congress? Who's in charge of doing all that sort of stuff? So I interviewed Professor Matt Green of Catholic University. Other episodes are with the authors of books about Congress. And they aim to pick that person's brains to give us insights and try to figure out how this complicated beast works and the various ways that it might be improved. And in addition to your own, the book that you co-edited with Lee Drutman, Congress Overwhelmed, what are some of the other books that are out there right now that are sort of the best things to read about the state of Congress? My favorite sort of recent study of Congress is Francis Lee's Unstable Majorities, sort of on the political dynamics within Congress. What are some others? Well, I, I can't help but call to people's attention a report that came out a few months ago by R. Philip Wallach in partnership with Molly Reynolds over at Brookings called Does the Executive Branch Control the Power of the Purse? And it 
does a great job of kind of getting into the weeds of the various ways that kind of the ultimate disbursement of money by the executive branch carries these little pockets of discretion, which gives the executive branch ways to move policy around. And they have recommendations about what to do about it. I mean, that's, that's good stuff there. You know, another book that I really liked came out a few years ago is by Don Wolfensberger, who's over at Bipartisan Policy Center and the Woodrow Wilson Center. He's kind of joint appointment type thing. And it's called Changing Cultures in Congress. And Don spent 28 years in the House of Representatives and worked on the Almighty Rules Committee. And he shows how the whole collaborative nature of the place eroded over time. And what we have now is this sort of procedural warfare going on where everybody is bending the rules one way or another to try to just ram stuff through, which to some degree is a consequence of the places no longer being more horizontally organized power-wise and everything being kind of top-down run. It's a great book. Right. I just, as soon as I finished plugging Francis's book, I realized I got the title wrong. It's not Unstable Majorities, it's Insecure Majorities. And it's a, it's, it's a really great, great read. Yeah. Kevin, I'm so, glad, I'm so glad you're doing the podcast. I'm so glad you're now at AEI. You joined us just a few months ago. I'm no longer the newest kid on the block, which is always a nice feeling. So I'm glad you're here. I'd really encourage our listeners to tune in to Kevin's podcast and also to keep an eye on his scholar page on AEI, where you can keep up with all of his work. Obviously, it's going to be a very busy time for those who are arguing about Congress, both in the, the months ahead and, and in the years to come. And, and Kevin, Philip, and others are doing really amazing work. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Adam. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Please do tune in to the next episode of Unprecedential. <laughs>